wait a second, one second. They don't want to see that. They just want to know, what's the answer, doctor? Most of it will never be read by anybody. I, I would never sink to making political comments, but... Hey, Rick Picotta here, Greg Henry, and we've got two special guests this month. Mike Zook is back to re review a case with us. Mike, thanks very much for joining us. And, and you brought on uh, a guest yourself to help uh, go through this case. So welcome aboard, all three of you. We've got uh, Mike Zook, Mike Weinstock, and we've got uh, Greg Henry on the line. So guys, welcome. Good morning. Thank, Thank you. Hi. Uh, what we're going to do today is a case uh, from Bounce Backs is uh, one or two, one of the one of the editions. Uh, it's a really interesting case because it's really <clears throat> pretty atypical in some of its presentations. But before we get started, I, I wanted to acknowledge that some of you probably don't know that the uh, Risk Management Monthly uh, essays or, or notes, as we call them, are now searchable. So if you want to find out about the uh, Dauber um, Whatever it was, what's that called, Greg? Dauber what? Uh, Dauber, uh, Dauber v. v uh, Merrill Dow, which had to do with junk science. Yeah, well, you can now search our database and get all of the issues that refer to that case. In addition, I wanted to tell you now that we are mobile. So you can uh, listen to this uh, broadcast on your iWhatever and, your, and your, your smartphone, your dumb phone, your iPad, your computer, you name it, you can listen should you choose to. Just a couple of updates. Okay, I'm going to turn it over to Mike, who's going to run with the ball here. Uh, Mike, before um, we get started, you are in Ohio someplace right now. Is that correct? Yep, I am in Columbus, Ohio, and we have a couple millimeters of ice covering everything. So school is canceled. Got four kids running around the house today. My wife's at work, so we'll see how this goes. <laughs> and if you want to see what that town looks like, check out the movie Goodbye, Columbus. Goodbye, Ohio State. <laughs> and uh, Mike and I are here in Los Angeles where we're suffering through uh, some clear sky. And um, it's supposed to be in the 60s today, you know, so I'm going to get my sweater on kind of thing. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> Rick, move on. Mike, uh, why don't you take us through this case? Absolutely. And, and thank, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to have Michael Zook with us also. We've had Mike on this program before, a medical malpractice attorney in Los Angeles. And Mike knows a lot about the law and a lot about medicine and, and is really a great resource to have here today. So thanks, Mike, for, for joining. So here what we have is a case. It's a framework. And it's a framework to discuss some points that we're going to be able to to bring up today. One of the main one is that we're at a crossroads with our electronic medical record. And it's so easy now, with one click, just to have a normal physical exam to put different disclaimers in the chart. And the problem is, is that when that's not always accurate, there could be a perception with the physician that this somehow protects us medical legally. And I think as we're going to see, that's not always the case. We're going to be able to use this. Michael, Michael, yes. you're the nicest man in the world. When you say not accurate, what you're saying is they put down things they didn't do. Is that correct? Let's, well, let, let, let's be clear for our, for our listeners. When you lie, it doesn't matter whether you did it electronically or whatever it is. You know, God will punish you for doing this. Enough said. Go on. 
it, you know that that is true, and and uh, I, I'm trying to be gentle with this, but it's easy for us to do this, and especially in a busy ED, to put something down. And when you can just click normal, well, when you got a patient with a prosthetic eye, and you say pupils are equally around reactive delight, you know, it just doesn't look good when you're trying to say that the other part of your documentation was actually accurate. So yes, it is lying. You are 100% right. But we're going to use this case like a tree with different branches. We're going to explore all the different branches. We're going to talk about the documentation. We're going to talk about the evaluation that was done. We're going to talk about evaluations of headache, the medical part of things, elevated blood pressure with headaches. And I think it's going to be very interesting. The other part about this case is that this case was actually a patient who was seen by a mid-level provider initially. We've talked about that a lot here. But I think it's going to be really something that comes out that we were working together, physicians, mid-level providers, to care for patients, and that has to be done as a team. So it's not going to be like the case we did in the past where there's accusations and finger-pointing. This worked very nicely together as a team, and I think we'll have some points about that also. So what I'm going to do is first talk about the patient story, and then we'll talk about the documentation. We'll discuss some of the medical, legal risk management and patient safety points of the initial evaluation, and then the bounce-back visit. Then finally, this case did go to trial, so we're going to read some actual trial testimony, and that's where Michael Zook is especially going to be helpful for us because we're going to try to figure out why attorneys objected, why they pursued different lines of questioning, and we're going to talk about that, and that's really going to drive home some of the points from that initial evaluation. So this case is unique because this patient presented on September 11th of 2001, and if you think that you are just there seeing patients and focus on them, having a huge distraction like that, that had to have color in some ways, I think, the evaluation that was done. But we'll go through things here. So this is the patient's story. Peggy is a 15-year-old high school student, usually to bed by 7 o'clock at night, so she can be up at 5 a.m. for school. She doesn't smoke or drink. She's one of three sisters, but is separated from her siblings and her parents. The other two sisters live with her father, and her mother lives in Phoenix, Arizona. Her home situation is unique. She lives with her grandmother, an engaging and caring person, founder of the Give the Children a Chance organization, and a host of gospel dimensions on a local radio station. One of five grandchildren, Peggy has some emotional issues, twice cutting herself, one time placing multiple parallel incisions on her left forearm, another time eight on the left shin. On the afternoon of September 11, 2001, only hours after United 93 hits the ground in Stony Creek, Pennsylvania, Peggy begins to cough and develops a headache. Her grandmother tries to get her into the car to take her to the doctor, but is unable. So at 2.15, Peggy's grandmother dials 911. Five minutes later, the paramedics arrive. They find Peggy sitting on the couch. They record, quote, Peggy had a sudden onset of neck and head pain this morning after coughing. Denies dizziness, nausea, vomiting, numbness, tingling of the extremities. ABC intact is able to move her neck. They transport and arrive in the emergency department at 2.43 in the afternoon. So the next part is the doctor's version. This is the actual documentation that's in the chart. It's shortened, and I'm going to go through the history of present illness, then we'll summarize the rest of the chart. So first of all, chief complaint headache. Nurse's notes, quote, patient complains of coughing and neck and head pains, complains of stiff neck. Ears plugged, some nausea and vomiting of thin liquids. Pain scale is 5 out of 10. Here is the history of present illness recorded by the physician assistant. Patient complains of throbbing frontal headache for a few hours prior to arrival. No nausea, vomiting, blurred vision, photophobia, numbness, fever. Patient denies it is the worst headache ever. No trauma. Stated it started after a coughing spell. 
The condition has remained unchanged since the onset. There's been no reported treatment prior to arrival. So that's the history that's recorded. And I want to read the review systems. I'm going to do it sort of fast because it's a little bit unbelievable. But I'm going to some read the exact documentation of the review systems. Here it is. Quote, Unless otherwise stated in this report or unable to obtain because of the patient's clinical or mental status as evidenced by the medical record, the patient's positive and negative responses for constitutional psych, eyes, ENT, cardiovascular, respiratory, gastrointestinal, neurological, generally urinary, musculoskeletal, integument, and systems related to the current problem are either stated in the preceding or not pertinent or negative for the symptoms and or complaints related to the presenting medical problem. All right, stop right now. He's guilty. <laughs> Just, just for putting that statement in the chart, you are guilty. Oh, my God. I, I mean, all honesty in this country is gone. Why don't you just put down, you know, all systems reviewed in negative or some other obvious lie. Uh, and just understand, we're not in a visit to the internist's office for your first visit. We get 12 minutes a patient. That is the biggest bunch of crap I ever heard, but go ahead. Well, I'm going to read one other thing that is right after that, and then I'd be very interested to hear Michael Zook's comments on it, because obviously they want to be able to bill the maximum amount, and they also want to make sure they have a disclaimer that anything bad that could have been occurring with this patient, we've evaluated for and is not occurring. So here's the next one. This is a little shorter. Quote, the history of present illness, review systems, and past and social history are complete to the best the patient or the patient's representative was capable of reporting or could not be obtained because of the patient's clinical or mental status as evidenced by the medical record. So there you go, Michael Zook. These things probably were just put on the chart. Maybe they're automatically on the chart. Maybe this is a macro that was dictated with the voice activated. So give us your thoughts on it, and then we could uh, <laughs> maybe ask some more pointed questions. From the attorney's standpoint, the plaintiff's attorney in a medical malpractice action would have a field day cross-examining the physician or the physician's assistant, whoever was responsible for uh, placing in the chart the review of systems and these paragraph under past medical history. You could take five minutes alone cross-examining someone on just what exactly did they do to assess the musculoskeletal system. Did they put the patient through a range of motion, all four extremities? Uh, how was the strength? Was it plus one, plus two, plus four? Uh, were there any deficits noted at all? I, it would be a field day. As a defense attorney, I'd be looking for a place to hide when my client was cross-examined on this. It is obviously a macro template, and I do not think that someone could straight face say otherwise. And it is not helpful. In fact, it is very harmful. Oh, I, I, couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. It could destroy this the credibility of an otherwise perfect physician who handled the case perfectly on this point alone. And once the jury gets tainted, you know, the, it's an uphill battle from there on. Well, do you I, think this was the physician assistant or a physician that put that, that in there and they made this up themselves? Or do you think that this was something that the hospital, some maybe attorney for the hospital or an administrator required or recommended that this is put on the chart to protect them in some way? Can we tell by looking at it either way? Uh, I can't, but it sure looks to me like uh, this is a, an EMR template, and I see them all the time, and they get physicians in trouble in California, not only in medical negligence cases, but with the medical board, because it's obviously not accurate, and it's obviously something that is just, uh, to use Dr. Henry's words, made up 
or alive. Yeah, I think at, at, at some point in time here, I, I'm sure that button on the computer says on it CYA. I'm sure that there's somebody who said, let's have this phrase in there and it'll cover everything. And what it really does is covers nothing. I'm against it. I think, I think charts have become a mechanism of, of billing and not reasonable health care. And it told, those things tell me nothing. And, and you know what? I think the jury sitting there, the, uh, you know, I, I, I want to hear the attorney comment on this, but doesn't it strain credibility that, that in your seven minutes or 11 minutes with the patient, you did all these things? Absolutely, because it would be, I think, if you took a stopwatch and asked the physician or the PA, whoever wrote this, to please tell the jury exactly what you did with a stopwatch and how you did it. Please do it on me. Check my neurological status. How would you do that? Check the musculoskeletal status. How would you make those observations? You physically could not do it in the time allotted or the time actually spent. And that's easily demonstrable, and it would destroy the credibility at an early phase in the trial, and it's simply not a good thing. Well, did they do that, Mike? Do they maybe uh, ask the grandmother who, who was there with the patient, you know, do you remember the physician checking the reflexes or checking the eyes or listening to the lungs? Do, do they ask that to try to substantiate whether the stuff was done or not? Absolutely. That would be an appropriate way to either, if the physician stuck to the story and said, yes, I did those things, or uh, and then could be uh, challenged by collateral witnesses such as the grandmother, who probably wouldn't remember because she was probably upset. And uh, you know, people's recollections of what actually occurs versus what they recall are, are often at, at odds anyway. But that would be something that could be explored, certainly. By the now, way, there's, ever... the, there's a good series of papers that looked at the question of what happened to patients and what do they remember. At one week, patients remember about 50% of what went on unless it was a rectal or a pelvic. But they went through and asked them, did they listen to both sides of the chest? And they had done videotapes of these physical examinations. Did they look in one eye or two? And they specifically did some of these things wrong so that, uh, that you know, see if the patients would pick up on them. It was just like flipping a coin unless it was a rectal or a pelvic. So I think the actual memory of people who are upset at the time they're in the department, it, it's like, um, you know, eyewitnesses at a shooting. Uh, it's, it's tenuous at best. Well, Mike, can they do that with, with these type of charts? Do you guys look back at other charts to see if this was a template for every single chart in the ED? Would that be helpful for the plaintiff to do that, to see if every single chart had this disclaimer put on them or this was more of a macro that was put out? Yeah, I think that would be possible, uh, uh, but I think that they could, by way of subpoenaing records and doing things, make that determination quite easily, yes. You know, with the macros, it's funny because you can put whatever you want as your macro, so I might have macro headache exam, and then my headache exam comes out, but it would be <laughs> sort of funny, like Greg said, you know, macro CYA, and then you could have whatever come out that, you, that came out that you wanted with that, and if these two statements came out, of course, as you said, it wouldn't really be... CYAing, it'd probably be the opposite. There was one other thing that was in the history, and we'll talk about this later. I think the uh, the astute listener would probably have picked this up, but it's going to be something that I'd like to talk about in, in a few minutes. But we'll come back to it 
because it was another disclaimer that was in there that was very interesting to me that it got, got put in the, the exam or in the history of present illness. So let's move on. So past medical history is basically negative except for asthma, not taking any medications, non-smoker, et cetera. Physical exam, the vital signs are normal with the pulse of 70. Blood pressure, 174 over 94. It was the one abnormality. And on the physical exam, basically it says alert and well-developed, age-appropriate, oriented to time, place, third person, affect appropriate for age. They go through the whole physical exam and it's basically normal the neurologic part of the exam says, quote, cranial and cerebellar functions normal, motor functions intact. During the ED course, remember she got to the ED at 2.43. She was seen by the triage nurse at 2.53. And at 4 o'clock, so one hour later, she got ibuprofen and 600 milligrams PO, had a soft collar applied to her neck with an ice pack, diagnosed as headache, and the discharge, uh, Shortly after, patient was discharged at home by the ED physician, returned in two to three days if no better. Condition upon discharge was undocumented, and she received a prescription for ibuprofen, returned to the ER if symptoms change. The chart was signed by the physician assistant and by the physician. So let's go through, and <clears throat> I'm going to actually bring up the, some different risk management points so we can talk about these one each in turn. The first is her chief complaint was headache. And her diagnosis was headache. So why don't we, we ask Greg and, and Rick, what are your guys' thoughts on the evaluation of headache here? How good a job do they do? Well, this is Rick here. I, um, I did read the, the notes that you sent along with this, and I, I was pretty much flabbergasted at the, um, at the concocted statement. I really don't uh, attribute that statement to any doctor. I got to think that a lawyer helped them concoct this ridiculous statement, uh, which was the, uh, the great cover your ass, uh, as, uh, as Greg said. You, you know, I did uh, also want to mention, before we get to, too far into this, I was in uh, one of our courses last week in Key West, and uh, one of the uh, PAs that were attending the course basically kind of took me to task a little bit because he had listened to one of the R's uh, tapes recently, uh, recordings, and uh, got the sense that Greg and I were kind of like anti-mid-level. And before we go any further into this, I really feel the necessity to make it very, very, very clear that I think that uh, nurse practitioners and, and, and PAs in the emergency department are are essential and are going to be more and more essential. And I, you know, I'm, I'm a big supporter. And so I really wanted to make it clear that, you know, if I gave the impression that uh, I was not, I, that's not the case. Yes, there are some issues that come up uh, in terms of supervision, usually on the part of the physician, uh, not the uh, mid-level. But in any case, I wanted to clarify that. Back to the headache. Um, you know, we're all concerned uh, about trying to find the serious headaches, and the ones we're always at the top of the list are these subarachnoid hemorrhages. And we always start asking these questions about, you know, was it sudden onset? And I don't think that that was clearly uh, uh, brought out in this case. We want to know about in intensity. You know, the nurse said five out of ten, yet there's some other um, in uh, ev evidence in this case that it was uh, much more significant than that. The fact that she came by ambulance, she couldn't get out of the chair kind of thing. Uh, there's a, some disconnect here that suggests that uh, maybe this uh, child was uh, 
was more suffering more than uh, was reflected in the chart. Uh, so onset intensity, duration, prior history of headaches, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, and I think one of the traps that we fall in all, all the time is the idea that, well, if this person has had any mental uh, hist history problems kind of thing, that that is disproportionately weighed I think routinely when we see patients in the emergency department, and it's a real trap to do that. So that's kind of my two cents into where we are at this point in the case. Hey, Greg, what do you think? Well, hey, hey, Rick, I agree completely. There are a couple of things which are not in doubt. And if you read John Edmead's work, he was the chair of neurology at the University of Toronto. He did the best look back at subarachnoid hemorrhage of anybody sort of in the history of the world. He looked at every subarachnoid hemorrhage in Ontario, a province of 10 million people, for 25 years. He looked at the history. He looked at the physical. If there's one question, and by the way, this statistically is 20 times more related to a subarachnoid than any other question, it's how long did it take from onset to maximum intensity. And if it went from zero to maximum intensity within a minute, the chances that this is a bleed just skyrocketed. It's interesting when you read the history here, this child, and 15-year-olds are children to me, said, um, there hasn't been any in change. I've had this bad headache for two hours, but it didn't say it slowly got worse. So what I would do is refine that question and just say, okay, from the moment it started, how long till it was its worst pain? And if it happened within a minute, now you're dealing with a different person. By the way, I think we have to put a disclaimer on this. Whenever we do a case on this show, it's got a bad disease associated with it. I understand that, that there's an innate prejudice in what we do to say, oh, they should have done this or should have done that. But if I pass on something to the listeners, the question to ask is moment of onset to maximum intensity. And I think that that's one I want to see answered on every headache case. Uh, and, and there's good statistical material to back that question up. Well, this is really ER medicine 101, isn't it? I mean, you think of, when I think of headaches, you know, the big two are subarachnoid hemorrhage and meningitis. So it seems like on every single headache patient, we always need to ask about that onset. We need to ask about fever. Now, those are two just very basic questions about some of those important issues. But the fact is, you got to at least ask that on every single headache question and every patient that comes in. And as far as the acuity of onset, oftentimes I'll say, how did it start or was it, did it start suddenly? And the patient will answer yes, and then you got to define that. Well, what do you mean by suddenly? Because relative to their life, they've never had a headache before and might have been sudden. But oftentimes they'll say, yeah, it built up over the afternoon between 1 and 5 o'clock. Well, of course, that's not suddenly to us, but for a patient who's now in the ED, that might be very suddenly. So let me go through this part here because the, the sentence I thought was very interesting, and I'm interested in, uh, Greg, your thoughts on this. Patient denies it is the worst headache ever. So you and I have talked about this in, in the past. The first headache you ever have in your life is, by definition, the worst headache and most benign headache you've ever had. 
That's such a buzzword, though. Worst headache ever. People get set in for that. That comes on the chart sometimes from triage, drives you crazy. What is your thought on that sentence? Patient denies it is the worst headache ever, Greg. Well, I'm going to go back to John Edmeads again. You might as well go back to the guy who really did this. He thought that that, that was so indistinct because people view it differently. And by the way, when you actually, if I talk to the patient and they say, oh, God, this is the worst headache I've ever had, I said, now, you sure it's the worst one you ever, well, maybe I had one this bad last week. I mean, it's very difficult to pin people down. I don't think you can rule in or rule out a serious cause of headache from that. By the way, uh, uh, Mike, you and I are in the Midwest. It's winter. It's cold. I put one more headache in that don't miss group, and that's carbon monoxide. Whenever I see, whenever there's two members from a family who both have headache, it's carbon monoxide till proven otherwise. Uh, if it uh, was worse at home and every time they leave the house, they're better, I think carbon monoxide. I've had the damnedest cases. I had two guys, two chuckleheads, who, who were out in their camper and decided after, after they made dinner on their hibachi, they would stick it in the back with them to keep them warm. Now, <laughs> <laughs> you know what? This is probably Darwinian. Um, you know, maybe they weren't meant to reproduce. I don't know. But, but I think in, in areas where we do use a lot of different heating devices, it's fair to think about carbon monoxide in, this, you know, in, the, in the, cold, the cold time of the year. Well, it might not even be so bad to put in the history, not the worst headache ever, but in the context of those other two macro CYAs, <laughs> disclaimers with the review of systems, what the doctor is basically saying is, I've evaluated for subarachnoid hemorrhage, and even if they have it, well, I've protected myself in some way. So I'd ask this question to Mike Zook. Is this protective? Patient denies it as the worst headache ever. Is that helpful at all to the doctor if it actually turns out to be subarachnoid hemorrhage? Um, well, yeah, yes and no. I mean, it, 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 I see it all the time. Mainly I see it from neurosurgeons attempting to justify intervention in, in, a, in a very iffy case. You know, they, the opposite, they, they, they will always put down Patient claims the worst headache ever. Uh, the flip side of that is, as I said here, it's not the worst headache ever. Is obviously a buzzword. It's obviously put in there with an eye towards uh, ruling out uh, any intracranial bleed or you know catastrophic event in the brain, you know, of immediate uh, onset. So I don't think it's it's helpful. I I think. Headache should be described unless the patient does say, quote, this is the worst headache I've ever had, close quote. Absent that, I don't think it's helpful. Well, Mike, I'm going to take you, take you to task a little bit more on this, even. We'll, st- we'll stay with you on this because per the chart, we can't really get a feel for what this patient's condition was, except for the fact that we know she came by squad. So it sounds like she left ambulatory. We don't really know that for sure. But what we found out later from testimony from the grandmother is that the patient had such a severe headache, she couldn't even get her in the car. When she got to the ED, and again, this is not in the chart, but this came out later during some of the trial testimony, she was examined in the wheelchair because her pain was so severe, they couldn't even get her onto the cart. So now, in light of this information, you ask yourself, how could this, in a 15-year-old girl, not have been the worst headache she's ever had? She came by squad, she couldn't get out of the wheelchair, 
has this happened in the past? This is obviously an inaccuracy in documentation, or as Greg Henry would say, <laughs> a lie. So not the worst headache ever. Almost impossible to believe in light of that other information that it wouldn't be the worst headache ever. Well, in light of that, that testimony, that, that's obviously correct. Uh, the other point is, going back to what we discussed a little earlier, the fact that she came in a wheelchair, couldn't get out, how the heck did she have uh, a normal uh, musculoskeletal exam with strength normal? Uh, that, that's impossible also. Uh, let, me kick in, let me kick in a couple of other things here that I don't want us to gloss over. There's no question that, uh, that the signal-to-noise ratio in a headache patient is huge. When she's got laceration marks on her arm, all of us have to take a deep breath. And I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm as bad as anybody else. I can't let that influence me as to whether that you can have two diseases. You can have immature personality, which a lot of 15-year-olds do, and you can have bad disease. And I, th I think there's a tendency for us to th assume that these patients have a quote-unquote sight problem uh, and, you know, all psych patients do die of something organic, and we probably ought to kind of keep that in mind, particularly with this patient. The second thing is she came in with neck pain. Um, I don't know why somebody put a cervical collar on it. Uh, we've got so much literature that that's useless. It's beyond believable. But uh, at least a quarter to a third of subarachnoid hemorrhages take place in the posterior fossa, and they will present not with classic head pain, but neck pain. Sudden onset of, of neck pain should be considered to have the same differential as sudden onset of head pain. Well, I'll tell you, this is our first point, I think, that really needs to be driven home here, is that inaccuracies in the medical record do not protect the physician when it turns out later that there's other evidence to the contrary. So let me read a little interaction from the trial here. We'll sort of skip to this just in the beginning here. This is from the, the plaintiff attorney to the plaintiff expert witness. Question, when a patient presents in severe pain, do they always provide 100% accurate information? Answer, sometimes a patient in severe pain is unable to give a history until you've treated their pain. Question, is it fair to say that the grandmother's version of interaction with the providers is not entirely consistent with the documentation? Answer, yes. Is it fair to say that Miss Rainey, that's Peggy, the patient, her version um, describes her as having severe pain and at some point screaming? Answer says, yes, sobbing. That's not noted anywhere in the physician report, is it? Answer, that's correct. So this is something I think is really, really important to bring out that just because your note says that the patient doesn't have any chest pain, if they have an MI and there's four family members in the room, I mean, there is, a, there is a trail going back with patients. And boy, at your peril, put inaccuracies in the chart. Well, what, now, wait a second, one second. Each one of us views the event differently. If you're into classic film, Akira Kurosawa's Roshamon shows an event from four or five different points of view. And most times... If we all went in and took a history and looked at the situation, we might have slight inconsistencies. But you're right. The big points ought to be about the same. But, but I see, I, I'll, I'll just tell you right now, if I went to anybody's department, took the nursing notes, the doc note, the tech note, whatever happened, 
there would be minor inconsistencies. It's the big picture we're looking for. Well, let me point out one of those minor inconsistencies because you actually sort of carried us right into this next point here. There's a contradiction between the triage note and the doctor's note. And this isn't something that's going to be a huge point with things, but the provider noted that there was no vomiting. They actually um, put that in their note. However, the nurse said there was vomiting. So the question is, who is correct on this? The nurse actually wrote that the patient was vomiting thin liquid. So it's a sort of specific type of vomiting, what she's vomiting. To me, that seems a little more believable than the physician's note. So Mike Zook, let's throw it back to you. Inaccuracies and contradiction between the triage note from the nurse and the provider's note, how damaging is that to the physician when that comes out in trial later? It is yet another nail in the coffin of credibility. Every little piece of evidence, whether it's inconsistency and obviously macro-generated note uh, of all systems when only several were actually really assessed adequately, all those things began to add up and hurt the credibility of the physician. And that can be devastating. And it can, it, it can destroy an otherwise uh, good physician who complied with the standard of care uh, and result in an adverse verdict. And like Greg Henry was saying, in all fairness, I mean, you got a 15-year-old girl. She come and she obviously has some mental health issues with the, the cutting, et cetera. So this is the patient not to, to improve your throughput times on. This is the one to sit down and really get an accurate story, maybe observe for some time. And it doesn't really seem like that was done. Let me bring up something else that I've always found is interesting is the difference between the chief complaint and other associated complaints. So for example, not on this patient, but in general, you have a patient who says, yeah, I have a headache and fever. Well, lack of an alternative reason for that. Of course, we're concerned about meningitis. Contradiction, you know, or, or compare that to a patient that has a, a runny nose and a cough, generalized body aches and a fever and also a headache. Well, now you're thinking the flu and probably not tapping that person. So she actually had headache is her chief complaint, but also symptoms of vomiting and neck pain. If you switch those around a little bit, could she have had some sort of carotid or vertebral dissection? Uh, is there something else going on? Maybe meningitis with the vomiting and the neck pain also? Greg, what are your thoughts on that difference between chief complaints and associated complaints? Well, I think we need to tell one story. And, I, and it's one of the jobs of the, of the person, the provider, whether that be the mid-level or the doc who's taking that history, you do have to rank order what's the worst. You're right. If they came in and said, you know, I've got this terrible neck pain and this uh, flu kind of drops down on our list there for a second. Uh, by the way, we do have a tendency as healthcare providers to try and make the story fit a known pattern of disease. Uh, I think it's useful sometimes just to write down G the complaints and kind of sit back and say, now, I'm not going to put words in the patient's mouth. I'm not going to order it. What does it look like if I don't do that? And, you know, I say this understanding I've been as guilty of it as anybody, where we want to find a convenient answer uh, that's easy, quick, this, that, and another thing. Uh, for us to do. And, you know, I, I know Rick has talked about this in the past. Uh, Rick, what do you think about this? Well, you know, I think that charting is intended to be self-serving. And I think we walk in the room and 
depending on the circumstances, we're going to say sick, non-sick. And if we say non-sick, as I think that this doctor did in this case, as reflected in the uh, very poor uh, quality of the charting and uh, these uh, macros, which are obviously not helpful, I think this doctor basically was creating the go-home record. And uh, despite the fact that there was a lot of evidence that um, there are significant things happening that were chosen not to be charted or the the physician was unaware of, but I got to believe with all of this trappings around this visit, coming by ambulance, in, in, in uh, you know, somebody said she screamed, the, the nurse said she vomited. All of this was chosen to be ignored because there was a bias that a 15-year-old doesn't have a serious problem, particularly when they have had some evidence of mental health issues. So this doctor was creating the go-home chart pretty much no matter what. And I think that was, you know, the um, resulted in this physician um, not picking up what that this child had a, a serious problem going on. Well, let me ask you a question then, Rick. What what is and this might be seem like an obvious answer. Um, what is the purpose of the chart? You know, my father is a ophthalm- <clears throat> ophthalmologist. He retired about a year ago. He's going to be eighty uh, next month. But you know, we talked to his friends. They, they hate the documentation stuff. They want to spend the time at the bedside with the patient. They don't want to do the document. They didn't do it when they were training to the level that we're doing it now. And now, boy, it's like, you know, the patient goes to the bathroom and you put a record of it. Well, the fact is, is that we have these incredibly intricate charts. What is the reason? Why are we doing a chart? We're not just doing it to protect ourselves legally if there's a bad outcome later. Well, I've often said that uh, charting for the vast majority of the cases is um, is a rehearsal because you know if we have one or one in twenty thousand, one in thirty thousand lawsuits, ninety nine percent of these charts are not going to be read by any doctor. They're going to be serving largely as billing records. Um, they some small subset, very small, will be used for quality assurance. So you wonder we're making a huge, huge, huge investment in generating charts on all of these folks when, in fact, uh, from a practical point of view, uh, it is uh, extraordinarily expensive in terms of physician time. And um, it, it most of it will never be read by anybody. As an example, when you refer a patient out to the family physician for a recheck, the family doctor, all they want to know is, what did you think was wrong? Uh, what did you do? Uh, what did the lab test show, if any, or what What did you order? Uh, did you order a CAT scan of the head or a neck x-ray? They want to know this really, really essential core information, but they're not interested in your, you know, your um, uh, history and physical in terms of uh, all of the flowery uh, explanations that you've made in all of your CYA statements. They don't want to see that. They just want to know, what's the answer, doctor? And so uh, I think that charting is really a... Um, a problem in that it rarely, rarely, rarely is important uh, in terms of these medical legal uh, um, issues, and it is primarily a billing document. Yeah, I wouldn't. Uh, I, I would never sink to making political comments, but um, what's happened is the chart is for everybody else but the doctor. It's a chart to for lawyers. It's a chart for billers. It's a chart for system analysis of things that don't need analyzing anyway. 
And when you produce that data, it's useless. We've got to get back. And by the way, if you talk to the family docs, the orthopods, the this or that, what they want is two paragraphs that summarize exactly what Rick said. Things you can read easily. You know, if you ask them about these big macro charts now that they have to go through, they don't go through them. Why? Because it's too much time. It's like what's happening with our electronic nursing records. What really happens is it's so hard to get at the nursing information, particularly since they reprint and reprint and reprint the same stuff. Um, nobody under we, we minimize those that, records which have actually important material on them. And I think that uh, we need to rethink this uh, process because it's no good for the patients. And when it's no good for the patient, uh, it's no good for anybody else. Well, we're going to find out what happens in just a minute because the patient did go to the primary care physician. And we're going to find out if they were able to access this chart. But before we go there, we can summarize. We're doing the chart for billing. We're doing it for medical legal protection. I'd throw one other thing in there that when a patient bounces back, we can actually look back and see what the initial physician thought. One of the big problems to me with this chart is that there's no progress note. And, you know, I'm not the kind of guy that feels like a progress note needs to go on every chart. Boy, if you ask, you know, the PERC criteria, you got 10 questions, you ask the patient, and you put it all on there, obviously you're thinking about PE. You sent them home, you didn't do a CT of the chest, obviously you didn't think that was going on. So a lot of stuff can be insinuated from the chart. But these patients with diagnostic uncertainty who have a potentially serious chief complaint, such as headache, especially in conjunction with neck pain and vomiting, those are the ones you have to put a progress note down on because we have to know what you're thinking. And if someone looks at that chart later, like Greg says, that's the most important thing that you want to look at. What was the provider thinking when they sent the patient home? Why did they think they had that headache? And why did they not think... It was due to these several life-threatening possibilities. Mike, this is, real, this is real easy. If you apply a therapy, did it work, yes or no? I can't picture a chart where somebody came in with pain and you gave them a little delauded that somebody didn't write down, patient now feeling fine. See, I, I, it's like the other shoe didn't drop. How would you know whether they can go home or not? Well, let's find out what happens um, with this patient here. She leaves the ED, and as we saw, she came in at 2.43. She left at 4.39, so she was there a little bit less than two hours. And she was discharged with that diagnosed headache with a soft neck collar and ice pack. Now, just one other quick point. She got a soft collar on her neck, but really no mention was made of neck pain or why they thought she had neck pain. So the diagnosis was just simply headache and the discharge instructions for that. So four days later, she goes to see the primary care physician. This is on September 15th. Peggy goes to see her PCP. Her complaint is neck pain at that point. He takes a history and examines the patient, prescribes flexor for the neck pain, and sends her home to return if worse. But it's unclear whether the doctor even knows that she'd been in the ED with a headache. Boy, I think that's a, that's a problem. You know, this patient is going now with a second time to see a provider, 15 years old, and we don't even know if the second provider knows that she was in the ED with a headache and neck pain at that time. I'm sure Rick would like to review the literature on Flexoril. What a magnificent medicine that is. 
immediately cured. You, you don't even have to take it. Just hold it in your hand and you're cured. Yeah, I just say exactly. <laughs> I think the guy that invented the name of Flexro got this huge, huge bonus because it's such a descriptive uh, name for a drug that you're gonna just going to be like a, a flexing all over the place and all of that stiffness is going to go away because you've got Flexoril on board. <laughs> Feel like an Olympic gymnast. <laughs> yeah. By the way, here's a question to our uh, listeners: How many people with a diagnosis of headache do you send home with a soft cervical collar? I I, I can't remember having done that, but uh, I don't know. It doesn't seem quite right to me. It's bizarre because it, it doesn't immobilize the neck at all. I mean, I guess you could be trying to get some of your placebo effect out of it. But a soft neck collar in a 15-year-old when you don't even put neck pain in your diagnosis, what is that all about? Well, let me ask another question. From the chart, could you tell if he really did check her for meningismus correctly, laying well, down, the, hand behind the head, rolling right. the head? Yeah. Gotcha. I, here's the neck exam. on the phys- And I didn't read the whole physical exam. Um, it says neck, supple, no tenderness, no lymphadenopathy. So... Hard to say. Maybe that was a uh, you know macro neck exam, or maybe they actually did check that. Again, it seems a bit hard to believe in a person who is in a wheelchair, who is sobbing and screaming, that you're going to be able to do a really good neck exam. Hey, look, may- maybe she took a flexor roll before she got there, and it was supple. You know, <laughs> it's just flexing it all over the place. But boy, the the folks that are in the wheelchair sobbing and screaming. I'm not really sure that that you get that great supple neck exam. It seems a little hard to believe that that was actually what happened. So let's get a little historical perspective here. Uh, September 15th, she went to the PCP. October 7th, 2001, country wakes up to the following headline. U.S. strikes Afghanistan. In a press conference, President George Bush said the United States and his allies had launched an attack Sunday night on targets in Afghanistan to retaliate from 911. The battle is now joined on many fronts, Mr. Bush said. Targeted accidents have been taken against Mr. Bin Laden's terrorist network. So that's October 7th. Next day, October 8th, 2001, Peggy's not up for school. At 5.10 a.m., her grandmother goes to her room to see if she's awake and finds her unresponsive. Paramedics are called. There's no attempt at resuscitation, and Peggy is pronounced dead. The next day, October 9th, as published in the local newspaper, Teen dies at home. Peggy Rainey, a 15-year-old South Cruisdale Avenue girl who'd been hospitalized recently, died this morning at home, and the county coroner's office removed her body, police said. They do not suspect foul play. The girl's mother found her unresponsive and not breathing at 5 a.m. The coroner will determine the cause of death. That's actually the newspaper article that, that was, uh, was out. And that same day, later, autopsy is performed. And the... Autopsy findings are this. Intracerebral hemorrhage due to ruptured barry aneurysm of posterior, or proximal left posterior communicating cerebral artery. Acute jet lesion of blood channel into left frontal lobe and left lateral ventricle with 30 milliliters left lateral ventricle hemorrhage. No gross evidence of thrombosic, or thrombosis or chronic hemorrhage. No hemosiderin staining around the site of the aneurysm. Acute pulmonary congestion and edema. No alcohol, drugs, or carbon monoxide. Greg? And then they made the notation about the cutting marks that were on the arm and leg. So now we move to the legal aspects of things. But before well, we be, do, be, any be, further thoughts do, on medicine here? Yeah. I, I mean, can you imagine if you're the doc? You know, Michael comment that, you know, attorneys uh, 
attorneys uh, appeal uh, their, their bad problems. We bury ours. If I was the doc who'd seen this case, this is one of those things you're never really going to get over. Uh, this is incredibly sad. Uh, and and uh, by the way, as I, as I said earlier, a third of these things are in the posterior fossa. They present as neck pain. And sure enough, that's where this one was, a posterior aneurysm. Uh, but this is incredibly sad for all parties involved. And um, this, this is how you define a tragic situation. Um, I'm, I'm glad I wasn't the doctor who saw her that day. And we have been critical of the physician's documentation. However, how many patients are you going to see, 15-year-olds who are cutters, who have a headache, who have a subarachnoid hemorrhage? I mean, this is just an incredibly rare occurrence and incredibly sad also. This kid who's had multiple problems emotionally through her life, problems with her parents, she's living with her grandmother, and all of a sudden has this incredible stroke of bad luck. So it is, like you said, Greg, just just a horribly tragic occurrence. But I'd have to acknowledge, though, you can paint it that way, but you can also say, how many 15-year-olds have you seen arrive by ambulance who are unable to get out of the chair, who, uh, whose uh, grandmother says she was uh, uh, screaming uh, and the nurse says she vomited? I mean, you can paint this after the fact to make this clearly an atypical case that should have uh, kind of turned some light bulbs on that said, you know, maybe I should do something a little bit more. I really believe that, um, you know, Dan Sullivan has talked about it. When we come into a room, uh, we have certain biases and we follow those biases, often ignoring obvious other facts which don't fit the, fit the picture that well, we choose I, to embrace. Well, you're right. We, we do bias. This is, uh, this is, I think he refers to it as an anchoring bias, that by God, we're going to make the facts fit our case. That's why I mentioned, um, I don't remember sending home a 15-year-old girl came in with headache with, 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 a, with, a, with a neck collar and don't have any findings on the neck. I mean, that seems real strange to me, but, but I don't think we should get away from the fact that it is a tragedy. Whether it's negligence or not is a separate issue, uh, but I'll, I'll tell you, this would, if I was the doc involved in this case... Uh, it would certainly bother me and my career. Um, uh, this, this is a hard one to live through, I think. Well, there's a term for this, actually. It's called the zebra retreat. And it's when you have a patient and you're concerned about some unusual problem, but the provider's thought is, well, it's so unusual, that's probably not going on, so I'm going to brush it under the rug. And I will say, you know, as rare as a subarachnoid hemorrhage is, when I think back on the last 12 months of my practice, I can't remember a patient who had severe pain, who was crying and screaming, who I had to examine in a wheelchair. I mean, to me, that is the red flag with what's going on. And it's unusual, and we want to herald resources. We don't want to radiate people unnecessarily. However, it's not that common, at least in my ED, to have people crying and screaming in such severe pain. And you absolutely, especially in that age group, and, and you can't find any specific reason for that or any history of that occurring in the past. So let's look at some of the, the legal issues of things. And I think this can be a real interesting, and I think it's going to drive home some of the points and really reinforce them as far as the medical evaluation that was done. So the cause of action 
The plaintiff filed a complaint September 2002, so about one year later. Plaintiff alleges that Peggy's pain and suffering in her death could have been prevented had the health care providers met the respective standards of care and detected or diagnosed Peggy's aneurysm. Had it been diagnosed and detected, she could have had life-saving surgery to clip the aneurysm, and her death was proximately caused by the defendant's negligence in failing to detect, diagnose, and treat her aneurysm. Mike Zook, does that sound pretty kosher as far as a cause of action? Absolutely. That, that is exactly what you would uh, claim on behalf of the uh, plaintiffs, that, which would be the parents, the heirs of the uh, decedent, the young lady. So we say here first uh, issue, and we're going to address some of the data gathering. And we talked about that with what things are important for a headache. So the question is, how did this come out during the trial? So here's the plaintiff expert witness. I'm going to read just a short part of the child testimony on this. Plaintiff expert witness, board-certified ED physician, who is being examined, the direct exam by the plaintiff attorney. And the allegation is that the history taken was incomplete. And if it had been adequate, that the doctor would have been alerted about a sentinel headache, a sentinel bleed. Question, is the history taken adequate for an emergency room physician? Answer, no. Question, why not? Answer, First, the history of present illness is totally inadequate. It doesn't meet the standards that one needs to do when you have someone who presents with a headache. The review of systems is inadequate and inconsistent with other data. The physical exam records the blood pressure one time, and it's a crisis blood pressure. This is never addressed or repeated. And as we remember, the systolic pressure was 174. One big deficiency in this record does not record a differential diagnosis, which is a major feature of every encounter. And the discharge condition isn't given, there's no reevaluation. There's nothing about response to treatment. It's an inadequate record. Question, what is the nature of the history of present illness that you've caused concern for? Answer, the standard for history of present illness that every medical student is taught early in their training is that there are seven items that need to be addressed, and these aren't addressed. And if they were addressed, I think an outcome would have been different. The items are location of the pain. That is addressed. The character throbbing, that's addressed. The onset and the time course is a sudden onset. That's the major thing that isn't addressed. The mitigating factors or precipitating factors, we know from the run sheet that this was precipitated by coughing, and that isn't addressed by the doctor. Then they say that, although actually I think it was. So you know by not addressing these important elements, the consideration of the cause of the headache was not there. So let's have some comments uh, first from Michael Zook on how effective this is from the plaintiff as far as the evaluation of the headache. And then we can all talk about that a little bit. I think that... uh portion of the testimony is extremely effective. And I think that if it were developed further, the next question would be, what does the standard of care require in this situation? And in addition to what was previously said, the expert would say, you don't let someone go from the ED with a headache until you have a cause of that headache defined and treated. And whether or not that's truly the standard of care or not, I believe that's what would be said, and that would be their, their selling point on that issue. So I think they're going down the right path, picking apart the history, uh, particularly for the most important uh, diagnostic or historical features, and then the absence of a diagnosis of the reason for a headache. Greg Henry, have you heard testimony like that in trials? No, I've spent a long time in trial. I've done hundreds <laughs> of headache cases, and and the uh, I think that there is some validity to what was stated. Uh, by a plaintiff's expert in this case. We want to know, again, I go back to my four principal questions from, uh, from, from John Edmeets. 
you know, uh, anybody in your family, one of his questions is, anybody in your family have headaches like this or anybody drop dead with a headache, anybody do this or that? There is a congenital basis to, uh, to having these uh, aneurysms, and it's probably worth knowing. I mean, there are a lot of things that weren't asked here. Uh, and I think, I think that's a real problem. I think the biggest question would be, doctor, why'd you diagnose headache and treat her as if she had a neck pain? You know, that's just, that seems so obvious to me as an area of, of inquiry that, um, you know, and I have no idea how much of this was said at the trial, but, uh, if I was plaintiff's counsel, I think I could give this doc a pretty hard time. Rick, what do you think? Yeah, I agree that the um, charting was uh, inadequate, looked pretty sloppy, uh, not very uh, well done. Uh, and I think basically it kind of reflects when the charting is so easily attacked, it's easily uh, extrapolated to the care rendered and the extent of the evaluation and the quality of the evaluation. If you can't write a nice chart, you know, how good was the rest of the stuff? Uh, so I agree. It makes the physician look pretty bad. And um, there were things on the chart that that should have been acknowledged. I think there, there, are, there were some conflicts, however. You know, the nurses wrote uh, five out of 10 for pain. Well, that doesn't sound like, you know, somebody who's screaming in pain. Uh, if you got a five out of 10, so um, uh, I think that this doctor basically did not create the chart that um, needed to be created to defend uh, his practice. Yeah, it, it seems like they tried with uh, saying this is not the worst headache of life. But the problem is if they were really concerned to put, put that in the chart, obviously they were thinking about it. You certainly would have wanted to ask about the acuity of onset. And they did ask some of those questions, the medical student questions for headache. And we all know Boy, you don't have to ask all those questions. In fact, you know, I got a 50-year-old with chest pain and diaphoresis and radiating to both shoulders. I don't need to ask any questions. I know that, that guy's got an EKG and he's coming in. Well, the fact is we're doing most of this charting for the billing and maybe for later so the inpatient doctor can look at it. But once I've asked those few questions, I've already put myself on the path that I'm going to progress down. Well, this patient, because she had the diagnostic uncertainty, because she had such severe pain, Boy, you had to have asked that question about the most serious thing that could be occurring and not asking about the acute onset was a major mistake with this. So let's move to number two here, point inaccurate, inadequate documentation of the events which occurred in the ED. And we talked about this a little bit, but let's see how this actually played out at trial. And this is the direct examination of the defense expert by the plaintiff attorney. So it's the plaintiff attorney who is doing their examination of the defense expert. Question. Wouldn't it be unusual for a 15-year-old girl, girl to come into an ER complaining of a severe headache? Answer, I'm not sure what you mean by unusual, but that isn't the most common age group that comes in with primary headache complaints. Question, and you're aware that she went to the ER on 9-11, the day the Twin Towers were struck by terrorists? Answer, I am. Question, wouldn't you find it even more unusual that a teenager would present herself to the ER complaining of a severe headache? if it was simply a common headache where she never presented the ER with the headache. And the defense yells out, objection. So, Mike Zook, w w object here? Why? This seems pretty logical train of questions. Well, uh, except that uh, it, it really does call for speculation. Um, and uh, whether one patient would uh, uh, come to the ED because of uh, a common headache 
whether whether or not she'd ever come before. How does the the expert know that? So I think uh, I think it's a pretty good objection actually for the defense lawyer. And I you know I would have said it calls for speculation, and uh, I'd I'd suspect that it'd be uh, sustained, but it wasn't obviously. So when when, uh, when a, a defense expert says or a defense attorney says the objection, well, the jury has still heard that question, and I, you know, you see on the, the TV shows and in, in trials, oh, you know, I advise the jury not to, uh, you know, not not to take what they just said into account. Does that really happen, or it has to in some way color the jury? Well, um, obviously, the jury is instructed that they are not to uh, consider the questions, only the answers. Uh, and the question is not evidence, only the answer is evidence, but obviously people are affected by everything. It's just a question of uh, uh, their emphasis they put on it. Some would put more, some would put less. I don't think it's, uh, uh, if, if an attorney asked a series of objectionable questions to attempt to make a point, I don't think that's an effective strategy for a plaintiff's lawyer. But from time to time, even an objectionable question can get a point across. Okay, all right, well, let's yeah. keep going here. They, by the uh, way, by the way, let me let me throw in one other thing about the fact that this was 9/11. I have in at least four cases seen as part of the allegation, part of of what plaintiffs had to say, diversion of the medical staff by other issues. I've had a 9/11 case that where someone said they were too busy running into the other room to look at the TV set to care about me. I've had one where they said there was a birthday party going on in the staff room. So, you know, this, this, and that had to happen. I had one that said, in fact, it was, it it was doing a major football game uh, between two schools in the big 10, which will remain anonymous um, (laughs) on this, on this broadcast, but that the doctor kept going back and he wasn't listening to me. He was looking at the TV in my room. Um, you know, this 9-11 thing, I think that we all are diverted by things. If you're watching 9-11 on the set and this gal's in there, I think, I think that, uh, I may have suggested to the jury that we don't, we, we understand why the doctor may have been diverted and confused that day. I don't know, Mike, what do you think about that? Uh, I actually think that's, that's. A very real thing and you know you can be a physician all day long but you're still a human being and you're still going to be affected by profound events and a football game may not be a profound event but 9-11 certainly was so yeah that's that's a very real factor uh by the way if you live in ann arbor michigan or columbus ohio those are profound events <laughs> well i remember when osu won the national championship about 10 years ago and uh, in the double overtime and right at the end, I had a patient came in. They were the only patient I had in the ED. They're the only patient I had in the ED, and they had a they had a difficult airway. And we had to do a fiber optic intubation of the patient as OSU was winning the national championship game. So <laughs> there you have it. I, I fortunately was not distracted too much by that. So let's continue with this line of thought here. They asked the question. Uh, the answer is no, not necessarily. In fact, if anything, it could be almost the other way around, which is even such as that could have could have induced a stress sort of reaction in the patient. Question, I'd like to give you a hypothetical. A patient's headache was bad enough to present herself to the ER on September 11, 2001. Patient arrives in an ambulance. She's not able to walk as normally would and was only able to be transported via wheelchair. 
The complaint complains of a headache described as one that is killing her, the stiff neck, nausea, and vomiting, the inability to walk and talk. Would your treatment differ in any regard to the treatment given by the ER physician? And the defense expert says, well, you're outlining a hypothetical case that has some differences from the documented record in this case. If I picked up that chart, my number one concern would be meningitis. The number one and number two on the list would be possible meningitis. It would not be subarachnoid hemorrhage. It's very uncommon in 15-year-olds. Question, and I gather that you would not have ordered a CT scan for the patient. Answer, I don't have sufficient information to be able to answer whether a CT scan would be indicated. Question, isn't the arrival of someone in an ambulance an indicator that the condition is serious? Answer, yes and no. We have patients that come in by ambulance who are taken off the gurney and sent to the waiting room. Some people use ambulances like taxis. We do a very careful evaluation immediately of a patient that comes in by ambulance, but that doesn't always mean they get put at the top of our priority list. Mike Zook, I think this is a pretty reasonable defense witness. His answers are pretty reasonable in, in light of this case. What do you think? I thought Dr. Eubank did an excellent job. Uh, two things that he did that are very, uh, very good technique-wise. Uh, when he was given the hypothetical, you can agree with the hypothetical, but quickly within the same answer say, but that's not this case, counsel, and here's why. And that can be extremely effective when the plaintiff's attorney uh, tries to give that hypothetical. The second thing uh, that he did, which was a very good uh, response, was his last answer about yes and no, because the plaintiff's attorney is trying to force the expert into agreeing with him. But when he says yes and no, he gives an explanation which gets his point across and diffuses any impact that the plaintiff's attorney attempted to make. So I think Dr. Eubank did an excellent job. Um, guys, I should tell you we have about uh, 12 minutes left, so I'd like to see if we can focus this into um, why the, uh, the outcome was what it was and to talk a little bit about this hemosiderin basis because it seems that this was kind of the, the, one of the crooks of the matter here. Well, Rick, you know, you, are, you always talk about um, uh, cr creative lawyering. I think that's the term you use. And um, but what, what, do you, what do you say exactly? Constructive Art ambiguity is the better term. Right? <laughs> Actually, it was called artful lawyering. Artful lawyering, that's what it is. Right, because um, they have this. Well, be before we do that, let me just bring up the blood pressure thing real quickly. We'll go through that in just a minute or two, and then we'll talk about this hemosiderin thing, because I think the, the way that this thing played out was very, very interesting. But let me talk about the elevated blood pressure in the ED. Question from the plaintiff expert to the defense attorney. Uh, uh, Cross-examine of the plaintiff expert uh, by the defense attorney. Question, do you have a concern with the blood pressure? And the answer is, yes, this was another big red flag. She had a blood pressure 174 over 95. A 16-year-old girl with no record of hypertension comes in with the high blood pressure, which is a major risk factor for severe headaches. And then they go on to talk about the fact that if you look at an adult, that would equate to an adult blood pressure of 250 over 150. Well, I, I'd be interested that's to hear all, a couple of thoughts. Crap. It's that's totally made all. up. That, that, you're just making it up now. Totally. And, and, the, and the lawyer was very clever and sort of went on a little bit of a uh, – uh, uh, out of a string here. They, they said, well, how do you know this is true? And he says, well, I have 25 years of experience as an emergency physician. And he said, I have some fine professors who have taught me that over the years. And the question from the attorney then was, you know, doctor, that doesn't count in a courtroom. So, you know, an elevated blood pressure that's causing the headache – or she has an elevated blood pressure because she has such a severe headache. It, to me, seems obvious that this is the second one, not the first. You know, Rick will jump in on this as well. 
but there are multiple papers in the EMA database that say there's no direct correlation between a, the, the blood pressure and the headache until you get to levels where you're, where you're practically in coma. Um, there are plenty of people with hypertension, severe hypertension, who have no headaches at all. And, so, and if you looked at John Edmead's work, it was the same thing. You couldn't predict exactly who was going to have a subarachnoid hemorrhage based on previous blood pressure problems. And I think that this is, this is science gone in the wrong direction here. Well, well this is one of the uh, chicken and egg phenomenons, and clearly the blood pressure should have been uh, repeated. And many times when things settle down, their blood pressure goes down and uh, it, it's no longer alarming. If it was sustained, uh, I would be a little bit more concerned about that. And the blood pressure was down when she went to the primary care office four days later, but it wasn't rechecked in the ED. So there's another thing from Sklar's work. You got to recheck the abnormal vital signs. And we have a couple studies here. We can put those in the show notes uh, relating to blood pressure and the ED, basically saying exactly what, what Greg was, was bringing up. So next issue, how is the case defended? And based on the hemosiderin staining, boy, this go, takes me back a long way back to medical school. I hadn't thought of hemosiderin for quite a while until I read this. So this is the cross-examine of the plaintiff expert witness by the defense attorney. This is pretty quick. Question, you're aware of what hemosiderin is, right? Answer, yes. Okay. And are you aware of whether or not if there is a subarachnoid bleed, if the brain is examined in an autopsy, there'll be evidence of hemosiderin? And this is surprising. He says, oh, actually, I never thought about that. I don't know. I don't know the answer to it. Question, fair enough. Did you review? Answer, I practiced in the emergency department. Question, did you review the deposition of the forensic pathologist? Answer, no. So Greg Henry and Michael Zook, boy, you're paying this guy to be your expert, and this guy hadn't read other parts of the testimony? <laughs> what do you think of that? Well, uh, from the attorney's standpoint, at least in my office, <laughs> I have a standing policy that I've actually written out and handed out to all attorneys and paralegals who defend physicians, and that is as follows. All experts get all materials all the time, no exceptions. I want my expert to review every single piece of data, whether it's relevant or not. It's expensive, it's time-consuming, but it prevents this type of question, which can destroy the credibility of the expert witness, and I've seen it time and time again. It's sort of like a glove-doesn't-fit moment here. How yeah, much does a defense well, expert well, get Here's get the paid? worst part. Here's the worst part. He missed an opportunity to bill for reading another dep. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't understand that. I mean, they just sent you money in the mail. Why would you not bill for it? So, so, so let me just, uh, 30 seconds here. Uh, Mike, look, what sort of a range that defense experts are, are paid? Depending on the, uh, specialty, uh, on the low end, about $350 an hour, and on the high end, about $750 an hour. Uh, some real, real uh, good experts who are in very discreet, uh, obscure areas, I've seen even $1,000 an hour. But that's very rare. The range would be between $350 and $750 in the Southern California area, which is the, primarily the basic area of my practice. <laughs> so, so who who doesn't have the time? They're 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 so busy for seven hundred fifty dollars an hour they can't read the <laughs> the plaintiff uh, or the uh, forensic pathologist testimony. 
I tell yeah, you, yeah. send us email. Read that for seven fifty an hour. So here we go. Here we go, Rick. Deposition the direct of the defense expert by the defense attorney. So this is the examination of the forensic pathologist. Question, did you reach any conclusion concerning her cause of death? Yes, the cause was death from a ruptured aneurysm. Question, to what extent was the history important? Answer, very, very little relevance. That seems curious, doesn't it? So question, what factors did you take into account? Answer, the autopsy report and the microscopic slides. There's no evidence of thrombosis or clotting of the aneurysm, no evidence of chronic hemorrhage or evidence of a previous hemorrhage. There was no hemosiderin staining anywhere around the site of the aneurysm. There's no evidence that she suffered a previous bleed any time more than four or five hours before she died. Question, and you reached the conclusion based on what factors? Answer, the autopsy report finds, findings call it an acute jet lesion. There's no evidence of thrombosis and no evidence of hemosiderin. So this is interesting, isn't it? This is artful lawyering, I think, at its best, although in some sense, you know, certainly could be defended based on this. This patient died of the aneurysm, and of course we think that a month before she had her sentinel bleed. I mean, it seems obvious that's what's going on, but there's no evidence that any blood had leaked to cause that when the autopsy was done. You realize that that's not right. I mean, it's scientifically not correct. You can have microbleeds warning hemorrhages with essentially no hemosiderin. So, I mean, I mean, he obviously found the most compliant expert he could find on this issue. And, uh, and, and you know, it, it's interesting that they would say that because that's what, that's what the microbleed is all about. Well, there's also a theory that um, you don't necessarily have to bleed. Uh, there's this concept that, and she was coughing, and this may have raised her intracranial pressure when she coughed, and this idea that you can distend aneurysms and that the nerve tissue around those aneurysms could have been stretched, and that you know that is considered to be the source of, uh, of, of pain. But um, to say that... There was no prior bleed because there was no hemosiderin staining of the surrounding tissues. Man, th that basically s says the whole case uh, rests on this one, you know, microscopic finding. And because it wasn't there, there was no prior bleed, and therefore the doctor didn't miss didn't miss this warning leak, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore the doctor is off the off the hook. I think that that's how the this cascade went, and it just doesn't really make any sense to me. But then again, Mike, you know my prejudices about how I view these cases. Exactly, exactly. Hey guys, Mike Zook, I bet I bet if you were the uh, defense attorney, you'd like to have Greg Henry and Rick Bucata. That would be <laughs> part of your part, <laughs> or if you, I guess, if you're the. Uh, the plaintiff attorney, you want to have them as part of your expert panel. A absolutely. But as a defense attorney, I think Dr. Manning did an excellent job of, of bringing the point across. And it's something that's very easy for a jury to understand <clears throat> and hold on to and hang their hat on. There was no evidence of a prior bleed. Why not? No, he here's, here's my question, however, to both the expert in emergency medicine and to the pathologist. The only, isn't it true, doctor? that the only areas that are painful in the brain, because the brain has no pain endings, the spinal cord has no pain endings, it's the vasculature. So some of these, what we're seeing is the expansion of the, of the aneurysm. That can cause pain, can it, doctor? And so we've got to get him to confirm the fact 
that just the expansion of the of the aneurysm itself before it is fully ruptured can be the source of the pain. This is this is a very tough area in question. And you know, I'm a defense-oriented guy, but believe me, these kinds of questions uh, could make you squirm in your seat. Well, guys, let's get we to have the a verdict couple, here. We uh, we only have a couple minutes left, so let's, as they say in the movies, cut to the chase. All right. Well, let's get to the verdict here. So here we're at September 13th, 2005. So we're four years, almost exactly, after she presented, and the average amount of time to adjudicate a case is 45 months. So this is almost exactly uh, keeping with the average. And as Greg Henry has said many times, in a, a trial, you have one loser and you have a bigger loser. So <laughs> even if you, if, you, if you win the case, you still spend 45 months of your life that you'll never get back going through this kind of stuff. So who won? The defense was the one that won. Um, the verdict was seven to one, returned for the defense on standard of care. And then, of course, because of that, they never needed to del- deliberate on causation. And we can ask Mike about that in a second. But this case was appealed, and it was appealed because of some of the testimony from the neurologist. And I'd like to, to bring out anybody that wants additional information on this case, of course, that's in the book. There's also, we have a website. It's embouncebacks.com. And a lot of the full trial testimony for these cases, and you won't be able to see this anywhere else, but the full trial testimony, opening and closing statements, all the examinations for, for many of the cases in the book are on the website, embouncebacks.com. And for this case, it is also, as well as the appeal. And, and it's very, very interesting as you read through this stuff. But the case was appealed, and then that was actually dismissed. So this was a verdict for the defense. So I guess if we're going to get some closing thoughts, Mike Zook, what do you think? Would you have taken this case? Would you have settled? Did you think that they did a good job going through it? Well, I probably would have... Uh, recommended that uh, they consider settlement at a reasonable uh, basis, not full value, but some compromise. That said, however, I thought that the case had a very good hook. Uh, the hook was the hemoceterin. Uh, jury easily could understand that, could extrapolate backwards that no reason to do a CT. CT might not have got it anyway with no bleed. There was no previous bleed. And unless the plaintiff was able to knock home the idea that the expansion of the vasculature could have in itself caused the, the pain. I think that the, the, the trier of fact quite easily uh, came to this decision once that effective testimony about no prior bleed, no sentinel bleed came in. And even though that's a causation argument, as we always see, it spills over to standard of care and they, they found no negligence. So I'm not, I'm not surprised at the verdict, frankly. How would you have voted, Rick? I don't have to ask you that question. I always vote against a doctor. <laughs> you, know, just, you can just assume that. <laughs> Greg, Greg, what are your, your thoughts on, uh, on things? As the president of an insurance company, would you have settled or taken this thing all the way? Well, I, I would have had to have read everybody's depositions, including those pathologists. And this is one of those cases where how good the pathologist presented would be key in whether this case was going to be settled or not. Um, but um, you can get my further comments on this in the book. I mean, I actually rever- re- reviewed this case before I actually saw the outcome. But um, I, I think that as a business person running the insurance company, one, if, if you thought that that, um, if you thought the um, experts were not as strong as you'd like, 
then you'd have to consider a reasonable settlement in this case. That, that, that would be my opinion. Okay, Greg, listen, do you want to do us a, a wine of the month? Uh, I'm only going to do a quick, quick yeah, wine of the make month here because we got to get out of here. Okay, we've all we've mentioned in the past uh, Duckhorn Vineyards, uh, one of my favorites, very good, Napa Valley, too much money, way too much money. However, they now have something. They, they've got a cheap, a cheap uh, thing on the side. It's not Duckhorn, it's Decoy. And uh, so Duckhorn puts out Decoy Sauvignon Blanc, the 2010, and I've had this. It's relatively cheap and is just a spectacular wine. This isn't at the expense of, this is not at the cost of their Merlots and that sort of thing. You know, the $30, $40, $50 bottle stuff. Buy this stuff. It's good. Uh, it's called Decoy. Same people who put out Duckhorn. And uh, that'll do it th- for this month, Rick. Guys, I got to thank uh, Mike Zook, Mike Weinstock, uh, Dr. Henry. Thank you, sir. And um, for putting this case together, the uh, the time that you've taken on it, Mike, it was uh, really appreciated. Uh, Pleasure. And Dr. Uh, Mike Zook, I really appreciate you're also taking the time to uh, give us your expertise on this case. You're quite welcome. Thank you. It's my privilege to be of any help. And Gregory, you're Gregory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just do I just do what I do, you know. That's that's all that's all I can do. We'll talk with you next month. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Goodbye everybody.